listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your host, Rob McClure. Blatant. Epistolary. Investigative. Kate Soper is a composer, performer, and writer whose work explores the integration of drama and rhetoric into musical structure, the slippery continuums of expressivity, intelligibility, and sense, and the wonderfully treacherous landscape of the human voice. A Pulitzer Prize finalist, Soper has received awards from the Guggenheim Foundation, the American Academy of Arts and Letters, the Kusevitsky Foundation, Chamber Music America, and ASCAP. Soper is a co-director and performer for Wet Ink, a New York-based new music ensemble dedicated to seeking out adventurous music across aesthetic boundaries. She teaches composition and electronic music at Smith College. Cool. Let's get started. Okay. Again, thank you for coming on. Lovely to meet you like this. You too. Uh, We're going to look at several of your pieces tonight. And I wanted to start off with uh, the piece, Only the Words Themselves Mean What They Say. Okay. And this is uh, a piece for uh, different different types of flutes. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, C flute, piccolo, and bass flute, and uh, and voice. Has this? Um, I, I assume this has been performed by other other ensembles other than just yourself. Yeah, yeah, it's been performed yeah. many times at this point. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, as a vocalist yourself, you, you know, I assume you were kind of writing it for yourself in a way. Yeah, this came up in our preamble a little bit, but I actually didn't study voice um, when I was in college or grad school, really. So uh, at the point when I was writing that piece, I had just started singing um, class concert music, contemporary music within the last year or so. Uh, and I had just joined the Wet Ink Ensemble. So it was really mm-hmm. a challenge to myself to try to just catch up as much as I could by writing something that was going to be really fiendishly difficult. And also just to find out what I like to do and what might be idiomatic about my voice um, Mm -hmm. in the context of this kind of new piece. And to, you know, work with Aaron Lesser, who's a brilliant flutist and was someone that I was just getting to know at that point. I mean, there are so many awesome flute techniques in this piece. And how did you kind of become familiar with with some of those techniques, I'm thinking particularly about that like low guttural sound that the flute can make when you blow, dir- uh-huh. like cover the cover the lip plate right. and dro- blow directly yeah. into it. I mean, that was really just being having access to Aaron Lesser, who is an amazing yeah. flutist. So, um, you know, I, I I wrote the structure and the vocal part, and I had flute gestures in mind. But she would come over to my apartment, and I would kind of say like, "Can you do some kind of like you know?" thing and then she would do that and I'd say what is that how can I write it down so I think this is true with many composers in many instances but in this piece um yeah it was really helpful to have her there every step of the way or just there once I was putting the piece together to show me the kinds of sounds that I was kind of thinking of but didn't really know um and then just in experimenting with her she would do something that you know I hadn't even thought of and then I would think of a way to incorporate that into the piece. Um, so yeah, it was a lot of just sort of, you know, having the animal of the flute in the room with me. Mm-hmm. And um, I should say that the first two pieces that we're going to look at, they're both uh, from your evening length work, uh, Ipsa Dixit. Mm-hmm. And I guess the question is, did this piece come first or was it written with already the thought of that? Yeah. No, this was length? first. This was the tip okay. of what I later 
decided was an iceberg. So um, I wrote this piece in 20, I started in 2010. And then Mm -hmm. I liked that experience so much that I wrote um, uh, what then became another movement, which was another duo that I wrote with our violinist, Josh. And then I wrote um, another duo with our percussionist, Ian. Um, So I had those three duos. And then a couple of years went by before I realized that I wanted to stitch them together somehow and that they seemed to want to talk to each other. And, uh, so I kind of got the gang back together and wrote the three quartets. Um, but yeah, when I wrote, um, uh, only the words, um, I was still in grad school. Ipsodix, it was not even a, you know, twinkle in my eye. Um, so I think it's an example of sometimes you try something new and, you know, just let things percolate for a few years and, um, they can end up, taking you in kind of an interesting journey that you didn't expect. Mm-hmm. So the, the text in this, it's written by Lydia Davis. Mm-hmm. Who is, who is Lydia Davis and how did you find her? Um, she's an American author. She's just an incredible writer. Um, I found her, so I'm always looking for text because I write um, so much vocal music and, and I'm a reader and I'm a writer. So <clears throat> I think um, I was shopping at the Strand bookstore uh, in New York and just kind of stumbled on her. Maybe she was on a featured table or something and just totally fell in love and thought this is the bee's knees and decided I was going (laughs) to buy one of her books. And I was deciding between two different volumes. I don't remember what they were at the time. And I couldn't decide. And I finally decided I would go for you know, volume A, even though there was a text in volume B that I just totally loved. So I thought, oh, I'll just copy down the text in this other book and then I'll buy volume A. And I guess this is before I had an iPhone or something you could take a picture with. So, right. Uh, and that text uh, in the volume that I wasn't going to buy was Go Away, which is the text for the first movement of Only the Words. So I wrote it down on, you know, the back of a bar napkin or something. And just in the experience of standing there in the aisle and just, because it takes longer to write something down than you realize sometimes, I think, by yeah. hand. So I wrote the whole thing down. And by the time I got to the end, I was just like, okay, I'm going to buy both of them. And I did. Um, <laughs> but just that for that text in particular, just how compact and uh, meandering at the same time it managed to be and the way that she just really deftly skewers inner thought um I just thought was so brilliant and I you know knew that I wanted to do something with that so then when I was looking for a text to use for this hypothetical duo I wanted to write with Aaron um Lydia Davis sprang to mind in that text in particular and then I found the other two I think they were both in the other book and actually at one point there were going to be four and there is another text of hers that I really really like that I couldn't figure out how to fit in so maybe Maybe at some point I'll, I'll in the get future. Back to that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But she's an incredible author. I recommend her to anyone. Yeah. How do you approach text setting in your pieces? It really depends, I think, on the piece and on the text. Sure. I, I, I mean, I could talk about how I approach it with this one. With... Of, yeah. Yeah. Let's do that. So um, only the words, the first movement, I really just sort of set it as this kind of monologue aria. And I had the whole thing really intact um, vocally before I started putting flute gestures to it. Um, and it's a lot about separating the voice into its stream of content or speech and its stream of, you know, wild cries or utterances. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and then the second movement had a more of a musical technique idea based around the bass flute harmonics. Uh, so that was more about um, thinking about a monolithic texture that I could use and whether uh, how it would work for myself on the flute to be exploring the extremes of the range and what that would have to do mm -hmm. with this very deep and poignant text. And then the third movement is very short text, um, two sentences. So um, I kind of extrapolated it and did a little uh, bagatelle about fricatives and sort of other mm -hmm. extended techniques that are fun for the voice and piccolo to do. So I think three different approaches in those three movements. And yeah, every time I set a text, there's probably some some specific way I'm setting it according to what the text is and what I'm trying right. to do. It's interesting that you said that the first movement, you basically had written out what the voice was going to do first and then kind of applied the flute to it because that, that movement in particular, but the piece in general kind of reminds me of this impression that I had of Kaya Sariajo's music after hearing her speak at a, uh, a composer seminar in Houston. Mm -hmm. And that impression was no solo is really a solo. Mm. Everything is colored and embellished by something else, although it might be just a single line. Mm -hmm. And I think she often writes, you know, the solo lines for multiple people and nothing is unison. And I think this idea really comes into play in this piece. So um, it, it seems like the flute is acting as kind of, a timbral modifier or a um, a gestural modifier, some something to support the voice, and, and not obviously not always, but its role, at least in the first movement, is one of kind of making the voice into this maybe even kind of hybrid instrument. Yeah, that's something that I think I thought about, and as as an inexperienced vocalist, it was a nice way for me to have some timbral support. And um, as someone trying to think about how to express a text that has some kind of um, inner conflict or inner duality, it was kind of nice to think about having these two sides to the voice. Uh, and then of course, there's a lot of things that the flutist flutists can do with their voices because they're mm -hmm. basically phonating into a resonant tube anyway. Um, so yeah, I think that's, that's a good way to put it. I mean, I was also wondering if your experience with electronic music had somehow shaped how you how you were approaching this piece. Maybe a little. I I wrote some electronic music for the last year of call undergrad, and then uh, hadn't really done much in the few years between that and the flute piece. But I think even the small little bagatelles that I wrote with for they were I wrote some pieces for tape and voice uh, tape pieces that included voice at rice mm -hmm. and I think maybe thinking about um timbral switches and the abrupt transitions that you can get with electronics that might have been something that felt like a language I wanted to explore and there are definitely moments in the flute duo where things really change on a dime or there's a surprise I like those elements in in most music um, so yeah, it could, could be, you know, that, and then there's, you know, a lot of extended techniques seem to relate in a way to electronic music, just because it's all about finding sounds that can be described mm -hmm. a little bit more with texture and taste or feel or something than with harmony or tone, just right. like with electronics. 
I was absolutely mesmerized by the end of the piece, the the end of the third movement. I mean, there are there are some visual elements to this piece as well. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I I encourage the listeners after you listen to it here, go find it on I think it's on Vimeo. It's and there's also some stuff on YouTube. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it it's easy to find. Go watch it because the the performance, the the actual the act of performance that you and Aaron give throughout this is just stunning. Yeah, really stunning. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, obviously that because this is, well, maybe not, you know, you, the, the larger piece that this belongs to, um, you say it's a semi-staged work. So, but this, this piece came before mm-hmm. that, that, uh, that longer work so is is kind of somewhat uh, having some kind of theater important in in your music um i think yeah and more than ever now but um with the with ipsa dixit yeah it's not it's not it's hard to say what elements are staged and what are not, because sometimes there is choreography in the piece that ends up being something that is sort of necessarily theatrical. Um, and the flute piece, I think it's also just that my, my, what I like to do as a performer is talk to people kind of. And I think because I didn't do a junior and senior recital and I was just not used to concert music, it, it um, just, maybe felt more interesting to me to be on stage in full realization that I am here on stage looking at you all and saying something to you, you know, um, right. which sometimes yeah. gets removed from normal vocal concert singing. Um, so, and then I think in that piece, so you meant the the very ending of the third movement, not the ending. of Yeah. The yeah. Yeah. That moment in particular, I, I, I thought it was going to be really funny. Actually, I remember just, I was talking to someone else about this the other day, but um, and it's important that there's a sense of poise or there's a kind of agreement of this kind of robotic lack of expression and we both have to face forward. Um, and yeah, it, it, it doesn't work if you don't, if you don't do something specific with your body. So that might mean that it's theatrical. I don't know. There's other. It seems like, mm-hmm. it seems like as the performer, you have to have complete commitment. You have to buy in completely to that gesture. Otherwise, I, it's just yeah, going to fall flat. I think I think so, but it's it's almost hard to say whether or not it is, in fact, just a musical gesture. I mean, I guess it's not really, but um, I don't think that everything that is invisible is a theatrical gesture, you know, in music. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, yeah, that ending doesn't work if the audience knows when the next... Uh, sound is going to occur and in order Mm -hmm. for that to be kept hidden you have to figure out a way to secretly cue each other and you have to count and you can't look at each other you know so um but it also does have a theatrical element just because you become very aware that something is going on with these people on stage acting like Mm -hmm. weirdos you know um (laughs) but there are other things in like i remember there's something some things in the first movement that i just do physically that Aaron also kind of does with me because we're so yoked in that movement. And uh, I remember someone asking like, is this in the score? Am I supposed to do that? And, and realizing like, no, it's not, but yeah, I do do it every time. So then, you know, I think, I think there's some kind of continuum of body language 
that becomes fixed and uh, invisible gestures that are still very important to the music and theatricalness and mm-hmm. things kind of can fit within one of those or many other categories in terms right. of theater the, and concert music. So this piece for you kind of lies somewhere in between the, uh, on that continuum. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've written pieces that are more concert music and I've written pieces that are more clearly theater pieces. And this mm-hmm. is, I think somewhere in the middle. Great. Well, let's listen to it. Uh, this we're, the recording that we're going to hear is Kate on vocals and Aaron Lesser on flute. When he says, go, go away, and come back, you are hurt by the words, even though you know he does not mean what the words say, or rather, you think he probably means... Go away! Because he is so angry at you, he does not want you anywhere near him right now. Although you are quite sure he does... ...to want you to stay away. He must want you to Back, either soon or later, depending on how quickly he may grow less angry during the time you are away. How he may remember other less angry feelings he often has for you. That may so. Soften his anger now. Although he does mean go away. But though he does mean go away. But though he does mean go away. He does not mean it as much as he means the that the words have in them, as he also means that in the words He means all the anger meant by someone who says such words and means that you should not come back ever. Or rather, he means most of the anger meant by such a person. For if he meant all the anger, he would also mean mean what the words mean what themselves say. Mean what the words say. That you should not come back ever. But being angry 
if he were merely to say, I'm very angry at you, you would not be as hurt as you are. Or you would not be hurt at all, even though the degree of anger, if it could be measured, might be exactly the same. Or perhaps the degree of anger could not be the same. Or perhaps it could be the same, but the anger would have to be of a different kind. A kind that could be shared as a problem. Whereas this kind can only be told in these words he does not mean. So, it is not the, in the words that hurts you, but the fact that he chooses to say words to you that mean you I should I never I come back. Even though he does not mean Even though only the words themselves mean what they say.
getting to know your body. If your eyeballs move, this means that you're thinking or about to start thinking. If you don't want to be thinking at this particular moment, Let's continue, and the next piece, again, is uh, we're going to hear an excerpt from the third movement of this longer work, uh, uh, Ipsa Dixit, and the third movement is called Rhetoric. Uh, you're using text from Aristotle, and then are you all, you're also writing new, new text inspired from his writing, is that correct? Yeah, I mean, Rhetoric is like the first half, I think I just sent you the second half, but the first half is mostly just kind of abridging Aristotle and then the mm -hmm. part I sent is yeah kind of like cribbed inspired by Aristotle but not okay. exactly his words kind right. of sort of what I thought he was kind of saying in a way or a, a version of something that he was saying that interested me what about this particular text kind of spoke to you yeah well well I rhetoric itself is it's it's really interesting it's it's sort of the first Aristotle's rhetoric the first um treaties on rhetoric I think surviving in western history um but mostly when I read it I was I 
got in this Aristotle kick and I was doing Aristotle for all the other three quartet movements. And, um, I was, was mostly not surprised by the things that he was saying. Rhetoric has never exited our general consciousness. We're all aware of basically what it is. It wouldn't surprise anyone to hear that Aristotle says that rhetoric doesn't, you know, necessarily mean that you're right. You just have to argue well. It wouldn't surprise you to learn that you have to read the audience or that you have to think about the time mm-hmm. of day. Or you know, so he says things about rhetoric that, you know, some of them are, are a little disturbing, but just in the way that rhetoric is disturbing. But what really the only thing that really shook me was that in one part he says kind of matter of factly that um that actually truth itself has some effect has some demonstrable effect uh so if you're arg- you're you know in a debate if your side is the side of truth you have an advantage just kind of a i don't know a moral advantage that somehow translates into greater effectiveness mm-hmm. and um so then if you lose and you were telling the truth, then you're really bad at rhetoric. But just the <laughs> idea, and this was, hap- you know, I was reading this, you know, and um, I guess it was before the last election, but just, you know, just the thought that we can tell when someone is telling the truth, something speaks to us about that is so compelling and then also has been so soundly rebuked, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. We don't know if someone's telling the truth. There's And, and someone's a skilled rhetorician, we will not know, you know, that's, we can't rely on what someone's saying. So, um, and then he does go on to say that even though truth is real, we still have to use rhetoric or people won't be, believe our argument. But, um, but I think that was really interesting to me just the, and, and, uh, and compelling the idea that maybe truth would be this thing that we can hear somehow or that works on us, even yeah. though that doesn't seem to be true. So I I wanted that to be kind of the, you know, the punchline for this movement. And then I was in the clip, I'm, uh, it starts with this like 12 tone row and there's all these triads. And I was kind of trying to think of irrefutable musical languages that I don't normally use. Uh, And then I was um, trying to think about certain ways he thinks about using the voice and what does it mean to just be telling the truth and just be natural versus what it means to be employing rhetorical techniques and how you can't even tell the difference between those two things sometimes. So, yeah, those are my those are some of my thoughts about rhetoric. From your website, it looks uh, it looks as if, you know, you, the composer and vocalist for this piece, are also interacting with the other instrumentalists for Mm -hmm. the piece by sometimes playing their instruments or maybe even augmenting what their instrument is capable by, like, providing another set of hands or, mm-hmm. or something yeah uh you, you know and you were you were talking about uh earlier about just getting together and co- sounds like you were just kind of jamming you know mm-hmm. you guys would just be a band yeah yeah um, for sure and, and I've, I've thought for a long time that process is really really attractive and mm-hmm. and, and you know really easy to get th- to get things going when you're just kind of in the room I mean mm-hmm. um was that is is that where some of those ideas came from? It's like you know you're just kind of in the room together and like, well, what if I did this? Mm-hmm. Um, some of the musical ideas. Oh yeah, Sorry, I, I guess I some of the about like truth, but um, no, those those ideas or or was it kind of 
a visual aesthetic that you were going for or was it something that was just kind of out of necessity like I I don't have enough hands to do this I think it's all of those things so again kind of like we were talking about before if it's in this kind of nebulous realm of music chamber music theatrical but not all the way stuff I think it's important to me that there be some reason other than just like it looks weird or something right so um that can be like a cool thing that happens to happen, but it has to be another set of hands or some kind of musical thing, or it can be a dramaturgical thing that also has musical meaning. So, um, and this was most easily accomplished in the duo. So in the violin duo, I always knew that one is really about language and communication and all of the duos and even all the whole piece has to do with, um, just thinking of the four of us as equal partners and not as the Mm -hmm. soprano as someone who stands apart. Um, so in the violin duo, I knew that I wanted there be to, to be a point where I played Josh's violin and, but you know, that's as far as I got. And then he came over and I said, let's, let's start jamming. And, um, yeah. you know, we, you know, I, I wrote the music, but I he had to have him there and he had to make suggestions. Um, and then the percussion duo, there's a long section where Ian and Tony and I play the marimba together, uh, from opposite sides of the instrument which is, again, you know, reaching chords that he couldn't reach on his own, but also it had something to do with the leveling that was happening between the two characters that we were playing. In that case, we're doing a, a little Socratic dialogue, and I was Socrates, and he was Socrates' friend Crito, um, and we're both talking also. So that had to do with wanting to put us on the same level musically and as speakers, mm-hmm. and also was kind of fun and choreographed and maybe looks cool. Um, and then in the quartets, there's more in the most in metaphysics, which is the last quartet and the fifth movement of the piece. Um, and that one, I knew I wanted to really take us apart as a band because, you know, the, the pursuit in metaphysics is what is something and how far can it transform and still be the thing that it is. Mm -hmm. So are we still, Kate, the singer, Josh, the violinist, Aaron, the flutist, and Ian, the percussionist. If Josh is playing the flute and I'm playing the violin and Ian's playing a busted up drum and Aaron's playing her mouthpiece or something, you know, so that we started with like an hour of just like, everyone take apart your instruments. Let's get stuff. (laughs) Um, And Poetics has a sort of a little bit more of a little theatrical thing that happens that has to involve some choreography from them more choreography and less um me messing with the instruments rhetoric is actually kind of the most straightforward of all six movements in a way mm-hmm. maybe that makes sense um so that one was sort of a little bit more like you know i've still made plenty of revisions but but here's the music and let's do it i think the only right. really unusual thing that happens is that josh and aaron put down their instruments and play the crotales for kind of an extended section mm-hmm. um where I wanted them, I, I did want to kind of come out a bit more and have the three of them kind of backing me up. Um, but yeah, no, it's, I mean, there's nothing like working closely over a long period of time with incredible musicians. It's really, yeah, you know, that's how you write good music in a way. That's the dream. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, let's listen to it. So this, uh, we're going to hear an excerpt from Rhetoric, which is the third movement of Ipsa Dixit. Uh, and the performers are going to be Kate Soper, Aaron Lesser, Ian Antonio and Josh Modney. Listen to 
faculties which can represent our thoughts and ideas. Therefore, although the most crucial elements of rhetoric are the facts and their arrangement, we must also consider their delivery, which includes the management of the voice, whether loud or soft, high or low, etc. Just as we aim to conceal the effort we use in composing our speeches, so we should recite them using a natural voice. This will come across as honest to our listeners, and so will be more persuasive than an artificially heightened tone. Ideally, the facts should speak for themselves, and all that we as speakers should try to do is not offend our listeners without worrying about entertaining them. Everything apart from the analytical demonstration of truth is insignificant. However, the style of a speech, while incidental to its content, has great power to affect the outcome. With certain listeners, even the most exact of proofs may be inadequate to sway them if presented in an ill-considered way. Therefore, we must conclude our only hope of triumph in persuasion lies in careful study and employment of the great and crucial art So let's move on to your piece for voice and tape, um, the understanding of all things. And this was written in 2013 and then revised in 2015 and again in 2019. Yeah. And I've recently I've recently been going through th some revisions of some older pieces. What made you come back to this piece repeatedly? Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I yeah, nothing's ever finished. I mean, I think well, first of all, I think it's really hard to be done with tape music because you can always just change that EQ or like, yeah. you know, Tweak. pop that thing up. So, but this piece just had kind of a weird journey. So it was originally a commission from uh, Dinosaur Annex. They were doing something with the MIT Museum that I think had recently opened or something. And um, they, this is going to be a long story. You don't have to include this whole thing, but um, they paired up four composers or so with four scientists who were making scientific videos and they wanted us to write pieces that would accompany these videos. So I got paired up with this very nice guy at Brandeis, I think, who I don't remember his name. He was work he was a physicist, I think, and he was working on these um I'm going to totally botch all of the science, but <laughs> some kind of crazy micro micro microorganism that its job is it's like casein or something. It, it it's like a thing that walks stuff from one cell to another cell. Just some kind of uh -huh. crazy thing that it's like, oh yeah, people are figuring that out. Yeah, um, right. So 
he had made this video where you could kind of see, um, you know, it just sort of looks like static, but then it kind of coalesces into certain ways because the thing, the cells are doing their thing. So we were watching this video and, you know, I, I really like hearing people talk about their stuff that they're doing and their scientific stuff. And I just understand it only as a layperson. So we were watching it and then there was this, um, this like black dot that kind of grew on the screen. And I got really excited. I was like, Oh, what's that? And he said, Oh, it's just an, it's an air bubble in the slide. And I just thought, like, uh. Oh yeah. Like for, you know, for me, I, I really, I want to understand. I'm like, yes, tell me what the secrets of cellular communication right. are. Yeah. But I, all I, but then I just see this one little thing and it's like, Oh, that, that's that thing. I'm going to focus on that. So it was sort of an interesting lesson to me and how little I know. And then, I had encountered this Kafka short story, The Top, which is about a philosopher who goes to playgrounds so that he can catch a spinning top while it's spinning. And when he does that, he experiences total happiness and then immediate disgust. And then he like looks for the next top. And so somehow those two things in my orbit just made me think of like, yes, this constant striving to know something. And then you think you have it figured out and then you immediately, you know, it doesn't work out or like being a composer, you know, you really think that you're going to figure it all out with this piece and it's going to be not just important for you, but for everyone and humanity. And then it never turns out to be, and you kind of hate yourself. And then the next day you're like, Oh, I have another idea. So, um, so I wanted to do something with that. And I ended up making a really crude video where I kind of kept zooming in on the, on the air bubble. Um, and, but because it was a commission from Dinosaur Annex, I wrote the original one for a soprano, flute, and cello, and tape. And um, it was, I don't, it might have been really, actually, yeah, it was really different. So all of the recordings in the tape part are made, uh, are manipulations of either myself reading the text or of a mm -hmm. spinning top in a cast iron skillet that had a really nice um, kind of stacked fifth uh, harmony to it. Just, you know, how metal things have a cool resonance. Yeah, yeah. It kind of grinds in a way. Yeah, it grinds, yeah. but you can hear this doo-doo-doo, yeah. like really kind yeah. of pure. That, so that was really present there. Mm -hmm. So I did, a you know, it's easy to kind of filter that out. Um, so I think the original version kind of only had those pitches and it was the, the flutist and cellist would kind of play with me and kind of, I wrote some aleatoric stuff and we played along with the tape. Um, so then I revised it in 2015 for what ink. So I wrote a full band version for all seven of us. And that really didn't work because it was way, it was just too much. No, you couldn't really hear me talking. And I mean, they sounded great, but it just wasn't, it wasn't really, I kind of realized it, it wasn't a piece that needed to be added more, more to it. Mm -hmm. I needed to reduce it. So then I, I thought, oh, maybe this is just a piece for solo vocalist and tape. So then I revised it for just me. And I also took this kind of two, this stacked three fifths thing and expanded it out so that I, it ends with this kind of swirling chain of fifths that goes from barely audible on the low end to barely audible on the high end. And that also to me seemed useful, like stupid circle of fifths, you know, you learn it in whatever freshman theory, but this beautiful, like we love this idea that it's all circular, just more <laughs> things that are simple. We try to understand yeah. them and try to convince ourselves that they're meaningful. But, um, so that was all the material and that was this version. And then I performed that version with Sam Pluta assisting on, on tape 
2015. And then I did it again this spring. And this was really just a tweaky revision. Like it had always bugged me that some of the timings were too short. And, and another thing I realized is that there's a voice in the tape and a live voice. And I wanted to be smarter about when the tape voice comes in and how, you know, this eventually this trade-off that it ends it ends before the moment that the philosopher becomes disgusted. So that the text is repeated three times and it ends, I think in this instant of catching the top before the realization that it doesn't mean anything. So yeah. um, at that point, the speaker who has been sort of singing and muttering is just sort of calmly talking. So yeah, that was kind of a real journey for me. I still don't really know how it turned out, but, um, but uh Yeah. Uh, that's the understanding of all things. So basically some things, I mean, that, that's actually, you know, before we started, we were talking about our experience of rice and Mm -hmm. that's something that Kurt Stallman taught me. Like, "Ah, it's never done. Yeah. It's just, uh, it's always a work in progress. Yeah. And I've kind of, I've kind of taken that idea forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think there's nothing wrong with with accepting that and, and not, worrying too much about the premiere sometimes so it worked i mean it worked for for boulez i mean mm-hmm. certainly yeah <laughs> like yeah. another it's great reviser it's good enough for us right <laughs> i mean after hearing multiple works of yours i think interruption is a major theme that comes mm-hmm. into play yeah um almost as if you know you're using like jump uh, jump cuts and like quick montage yeah in film. yeah I mean, it is. It makes your music simultaneously moving and motionless. Uh huh. Huh. So, I mean, can you can you kind of pinpoint influences or ideas that gave rise to this as a musical idea? No one's ever said that before, but you're totally right. Well, the first thing that springs to mind is Beethoven because he's so good at that and interruptions, and then you don't know where you are, and then you hear something that you recognize from two movements ago or something. So I think that's something I really love about Beethoven and kind of this sort of it's humor, but in a kind of a sadistic way sometimes like yeah. just to, to be interrupted. Um, and then I, I, I don't know, I, I, I really like to be surprised, you know, I think um, twists. I don't know. I like I like the theater a lot. Um, so I think. You know, I mean, it goes back to Aristotle, this idea of like, you know, the, the moment when everything changes and you realize what really was happening all along. That's like yeah. the moment that you, that's why you go seek entertainment. Um, so, yeah, I think I, I think I like, I like the comedy of it. I think as a, as a performer too, it's, I like to go for the laugh or the shock kind of laugh by default because you're surprised. It's just right. a good way to make sure you're connecting, you know, with the uh-huh. audience. Um yeah, I guess I just, yeah, I think it's, yeah, interruptions. That's interesting. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think it's something about surprise, something about humor, yeah. something also about revealing what is really going on, like putting something into, throwing it into relief to say, you thought this was going along very normally, but it's not. I, I often have, yeah, moments where the music is interrupted because someone gets exasperated or, you know, mm-hmm. like it's, it's something that happens because someone had an emotion and I like to have that happen, even if it's chamber music somehow. Right. I mean, in a way, I think it, it reflects how our brains work, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, because uh, just today before I, I was, I was doing some 
work on a on uh composition today and bef- beforehand i've been i don't know i've been just really like scattered recently mm-hmm. so i was uh i was um attempting to uh meditate before i started to work mm-hmm. and it's only when you try to clear your brain do you realize mm-hmm. how much stuff is just constantly yeah. constantly interrupting mm-hmm. a, a train of thought yeah. or it, you know your your intentional focus is it, it's it's just so easy mm-hmm. to to have that that stream broken mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. It, yeah it, it just kind of reminds me of the way our brains naturally yeah, just work like squirrel 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 yeah like exactly. dog in a park. yeah <laughs> right 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 well, let's uh, let's take a listen to this. So uh, this is the understanding of all things. And again, we're going to hear you, Kate Soper, as the vocalist. And the text is an adaptation of a Kafka story called Der Kreisel. Once there was a philosopher and whenever he with a spinning he as soon as it began to The philosopher. So the children shrieked. He paid no. As managed to cut the He was happy, but only for that moment. Then, then he would fling it down and. Such as a spinning top sufficient for the understanding of therefore inefficient to him to stop complex smallest he focused only on the top. Whenever a top was ready to be spun. He hoped that this time he would chasing after it, his hope returned to certainty. But the dumb wooden thing in his head fell disgusted. All at once, and he staggered.
Once there was a philosopher where children played. And whenever he saw a child with a spinning toe, he would lie in wait. As the top began to... The philosopher would pounce. Though the children shield their toy, he paid no attention. As long as he managed to catch the top while it still spun, he was happy. But only for, for that moment. And then he would fling it and walk away. Understanding of any small, such as a spinning top, was sufficient for the understanding of all. Seemed therefore inefficient to study complex problems. Once the smallest detail is truly known, are all things known, and so he focused only on the top. And whenever a top was ready to be spun, he hoped that this time he would succeed. And while he was breathlessly chasing after it, his hope returned to certainty. But as soon as he held the dumb thing in his hand, he felt disgusted. And all at once, the howling of the children burst into his ears, battering away. And he staggered like a little like a under a clumsy stain. Once there was a philosopher who hung about where children played. And whenever he saw a child with a spinning top, he would lie in wait. As soon as the top began to spin, the philosopher would pounce. Though the children shrieked and tried to shield it, he paid no attention. As long as he managed to catch the top while it still spun, he was happy. But only for that moment. And then he would fling it down and walk away.
Or it was his belief that the understanding of any small thing, such as a spinning top, was sufficient for the understanding of all things. It seemed, therefore, inefficient to him to study complex problems. Once the smallest detail is truly known, are all things known. So uh, the last question, the question that I ask all the uh, composers, artists uh, that come on the podcast is, how did you come to music as something that you wanted to pursue for your life? Well, I have been composing music and playing and stuff since before or since I was a little kid. So it was always something that um, a part of me. Um, and then I think, well, I, you know, I, I had written enough that I had a portfolio to apply to college with. So I wound up at Rice for undergraduate in composition. Um, and I think was the question when or how or why, or just, yeah, I guess, I guess how, because so it seems like, you know, you had this, uh, you had this training starting as a child. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, there... I mean, I, at first it wasn't even before I was training anything. I was just writing music, but then I took piano lessons for many years and that kind of mm-hmm. thing, and uh, wrote music for school plays. Um, I think deciding was, you know, I got to college, and you know, it became apparent that it was going to be hard um, because you know you, you yeah. like do what you're doing when you're a kid, and then and not even just you know financially hard or or logistically hard, but psychologically I mean you know it's hard it's not coal mining it's all relative but like right but just that that I I I had a moment when I realized it was going to be so much harder than I thought that I didn't know if I could do it um and actually I think I wrote Tony Brandt, we were talking about him, a professor at Rice, mm-hmm. a, a, one of those like middle of the night emails. <laughs> and now I'm a professor <laughs> and I get just like, you know, I can't go on or something. Right, so, yeah. <laughs> um, and I think he just told me to relax and get a Jamba Juice and everything would be okay. But um, <laughs> but I think I had some, you know, dark night of the soul at age 20 yeah. and just thought, well, you know, I don't know if I can do it and I don't feel like I'm good enough. And I don't know what I'm doing and maybe everyone else does, but I want to try. So, so yeah, I feel like there that was sort of a turning point for me of just, you know, I'm not giving up on this. And then, yeah, that somehow seems like the moment of deciding not to drop out of the music school, which I was sort of thinking about and um, keep going. I, I was a singer songwriter at that point, but I hadn't really, figured out how to, you know, find my voice or whatever it is. Um, and then, yeah, then from there, you know, I, I wound my way to New York. I met these incredible musicians. I started reading and writing more. I finally started taking voice lessons. I, you know, started singing, started, things started accumulating. So, um, uh, yeah, it, it all started to seem more possible, um, I think from there, but yeah, it was just, it was always, an early part of me and then just, you know, some kind of reckoning at some point to decide that it was yeah. something I wanted to 
to go through. Awesome. Well, uh, before we go, can you tell everyone where they can find more of their more of your music, or if they want to reach out to you and connect with you, how they can do that? Um, sure. Well, I have a website, www.katesoper.com, and there are links to SoundCloud and YouTube and Vimeo from there. And I think I have a contact me thing there, so you can get in touch. I don't really have the social medias. I have a YouTube page, but I don't have the Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or anything like that. Um, so I'm guessing yes. you're probably a happier person for that. I think so. I don't know <laughs> the alternative. I did used to have Facebook, but um, uh, yeah. So yeah. see you in the real world. Awesome. Thank you so much for doing this, Kate. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com.